It is Sunday, May 23rd, 2004. This is Mathieu Pirot, the Frenchman from Baton Rouge. Tonight's special is Mousse. <laughs> mousse the chocolate of Jesus. Um, what, what, during worship, there's more for the, the tape people, but during worship, we had an awesome worship time, but it was a, a strong emphasis within me. Just, and once again, this intensity of, I'm not going to be intimidated by resistance. And just, just like you said, David, a lot of times you don't know it's creeping up on you. Creep is the word. Until you're three-quarters of the way overcome or all the way overcome, and you feel helpless, like you're just flailing in quicksand. And uh, like during worship, I was saying, that's the the body. And more or less, not necessarily that, you guys would have never faced this if you had been around other Christians, but the very fact that you two were together are a body. And one that was one of the, the beautiful parts about having such close friends, but as well as mates, is that when one is down, the other one usually picks the other one up. And uh, where it gets, it gets tough is when the, the overcoming effect is on both of them, and you're kind of like, we're sinking, we're both sinking. And then all of a sudden, Jesus steps in, regardless, in one person or to both, and pulls both of you out and overcomes and just... But what that does, what it's done in me, is created, first of all, an awareness of the devil's schemes. I'm not unaware of the devil's schemes. And uh, uh, sometimes I feel like I'm being overly spiritually critical like I got my antenna up all the time, like, oh, what's the real meaning behind this physical action? Sometimes, you know, things happen because it's a natural effect. It rains, puddles occur, people hydroplane, and they crash into walls on Beltway 8. It's like it did when me and David were coming back last weekend. But, because <laughs> the words they're talking about, it rains on the rich and the poor, and the godly and the ungodly. They're natural things that happen. But, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we do have, the difference is, we do have God's favor and His Spirit in us that gives us endurance and encouragement, but also gives us protection. You know, last night, we were, me and my wife were out on a date, and I forgot my keys on the restaurant table. And this seems to follow me around all the time. I got the Justin and Lynn Johnson syndrome. Uh, losing stuff big time. My wallet, my keys. I'm surprised I haven't lost my car yet. But, uh, I left them on the table. We went and watched a movie. And it's a, it's a big complex. The, the theater and the restaurant are golly, walking distance apart. So we go watch the movie. We're out late at night. Come back. And we're going to the car. And I say, okay, left pocket, wallet. Right pocket, nothing. Try it again. Left pocket, wallet. Right pocket, nothing. No keys. Where's my keys? <laughs> so I was like, restaurant. Let's go back to the restaurant. They were closing up, mopping the floor, all that kind of stuff. And I praise God, they were still open, so I found them and brought them to the front desk. But that's a small thing. big thing was like the water puddle, water, water puddle on Bellway 8. And Jesus just guided the car right around the spinning truck in front of us. <laughs> and uh, we, we had the, well, the, the, it weren't really cars directly to the side of us. They were kind of behind us. Uh, some of them swerved off the side and went on the median. Not medium, but the, the shoulder. Uh, but when the truck came to a standstill, other cars are slowing down. It didn't, they didn't hit the truck in great force, but they did hit it. It was like about a five or six car pileup. 
And, uh, and we were fractions of a second right behind him. And, you know, Jesus took up the slack. But uh, I said on that to say that in, in times of resistance, I know it's Jesus. It's not necessarily me because I see it working everybody. But it's like he just starts to fire us up. And the devil has pushed too many of our buttons. And it's like, I've had enough. I'm coming at you. You know, watch out, sucker. And uh, I, I just get this intensity and go right back to him. What I was going to relate to in football was I was a freshman in high school. I saw these big guys playing football. It was the summer, right before school. I knew zero people at this school. So I couldn't really just fall in and be part of the crowd. I had to kind of prove myself right then and there, physically. And I was a skinny beanpole trying to play with trees. Well, uh, a couple of things happened over a uh, course of about a month, and I felt defeated because every time I would go and practice, I'd just be overcome by these massive guys. Well, one of them hit me, or just, I mean, it was normal, but the, this helmet, this corner of his helmet, the padded part on the metal came off so it was bare metal, and it had been nicked off so it has like a little edge or a, a burr to it. And his, that part of, it, of his helmet caught me in my elbow right on the bone. And it took a chunk of skin off. And it, it, it's like somebody hitting your funny bone, but inside your bone, they hit it. <laughs> I want to explain that. It, it really hurt. That's a good way to explain it. So I was kind of stunned. I was like, that, that really hurt. Like earlier that day, they had done something or said something. It's part of a macho thing and hurt my feelings. But that really kind of set it off. Well, we did the same play again, and they hit that same spot, same person, man. His helmet caught it in the same position. I was like, okay, that's it. I'm getting getting wild on these people. I'm going to unleash the mat. <laughs> unleash the mat! Release them. <laughs> doom, doom, doom. Well, from that point, I was a defining moment in my my time period as a football, but I was able to, later on when I got born again, I related to myself spiritually. That I had enough uh, beatings from my opposition where I had to realize that I needed to be overly aggressive than I was. I wasn't being aggressive enough. That's why I got hit like I did. I wasn't doing my proper technique. I was timid. I was just kind of, you know, a bit more bracing for the impact than giving a return impact and I didn't realize if I return with all my might that more than likely he's going to feel it more than I do and if I do feel it that means he really felt it so there were were cases or times in in my walk and one thing that's cool is that it's never just one time deal there's a different scenario there's a different avenue or part of your life where that happens and it just you know, Jesus puts you in a situation where you get beat up a little bit. But what it takes is, or what it brings, is the revelation that we are warriors spiritually. We are mighty and fierce warriors. And that's the way we got to be. We can hear that scripture all day long from the days of John the Baptist until now. Men and men forcefully advance the kingdom. And forceful men lay hold of it. it, it it's, so, it's so scripturized in our mind that it's something else when it comes to living it i mean that's where it becomes real like we preached uh, last wednesday you know 
You become mature by constant use of the word. No different than a warrior. He becomes a, a seasoned veteran by, by constant interaction with his enemy and training. So that's exactly what we're doing here. We're training. We don't need to be, we, well, sometimes we war to get in his presence to get really more from our, our carnal mindset and into the presence of God. But when we go out there, that's where we really war at. And what you're fighting for is to advance the kingdom of God in any shape or form that Jesus has called you to do it. If it's at pain care center, ministering to people, and, I, you know, I'm not trying to plan anything, but, you know, she's a, a, a physical therapist or rehab specialist, and she's got a pain in her neck. She's trying to help other people recover. How much more can it be a testimony to the people she's working with that she's still doing this and... Wouldn't it be awesome if she got healed right in the middle of it? And, so, and be able to tell that person, hey, my, you know, I got my brothers and sisters in Jesus to pray for me. And it didn't take effect then, but, you know, look what God did. And it happened right here in front of you. It may impact that person's life for their life, the entirety of their life. So we're forcefully advancing the kingdom. And that's, that's awesome that, uh, that you guys experienced that last night. Because that's going to be just another milestone in your walk. Next time you feel it, it's not going to feel as more of an overcoming sense. You, you'll be aware. It's like, wait a minute, we've been through this before. We know how to do this. <laughs> We're coming back at you. All right. Starting Wednesday, we went through the book of James, or started going through the book of James. We started with chapter 1. If you want that information, you can purchase it for 19. No, no I'm just joking. We covered it Wednesday night, chapter 1, so we're going to move on to chapter 2. James chapter 2, if you're taking notes. You know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, doing worship, you know, it's tough whenever, I, for me personally, when I miss chords or miss notes, I just feel awkward and Everything we just talked about, you can kind of see it relived in a, in a microcosm of time uh, within 10, 15 minutes of, oh, I messed up, and oh, I'm not leading worship right, and I'm not doing a good job, and they're not entering in. It's getting worse. I'm drowning. And then it's like, shake it off, say, no, Jesus, Jesus can work with anything. You can use anything, Lord. You can definitely use me. So I'm going to take my failures and let Jesus use them, man, and get that more intense and come right back at it and go in the presence of God. Amen? All right. Don't be afraid to be vocal. Just don't interrupt me. James, chapter 1. So, yeah, James one, uh, 2, verse 1. And my brain is somewhere else. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, or a Lexus. He doesn't wear a Lexus, he drives it. And a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit the floor by my feet, you lowly, you know, slug. Have you not discriminated 
among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? That one scripture, the one, uh, he has, he has, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? Going back to what we were talking about earlier, having milestones, incurring or uh, experiencing things in the kingdom that cause you to develop a certain way, to develop character. It's like we read last Wednesday, Romans 5, 1 through 5. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character. It shapes and molds the inside of who you are. Puts everything back into sober judgment and correct perspective. Nothing more dangerous than someone to think that he's more than what he's really not. Um, but uh, thinking of the, the hyper-faith movement, you know, these guys, and they, they still do, they preach money, money, money. Oh, it's loud. Oh, it's on the speakers. Take this second for a pause. I'm sorry, is that better? Yes! All right! I was wondering why y'all had y'all's hands over your ears. And it was bleeding. There was actually blood coming out of your earlobe. But um, during the hyperfaith movement, and even still now, there's this, they may never come out and directly say it, but they equate worldly wealth with godliness. And connect those two. Or really, going back to this scripture, worldly wealth with huge amounts of faith. Well, if you had the faith, then you would have the wealth. This one scripture alone, I mean, we always take scripture in light of scripture. But this one scripture alone totally discounts their interpretation, put that in quote marks, of prosperity in Jesus. Prosperity in Jesus is not getting worldly wealth. It's having things in times of need beyond natural circumstance. Someone should have stolen my keys, therefore and stolen my car. I left my wallet somewhere. Someone should have stolen my wallet. But because of that need that really I was unaware of until much later on, Jesus was aware of, he was able to take care of me and provided me sustenance in my time of need. How much more than when we are in need do we cry out to God and really walk, walk a holy life and make sure that we are in fellowship with Jesus' Spirit, that we're not doing anything that will be a legitimate excuse for the devil to have a foothold. No man can say, Lord, bless me, bless me, when he's sitting there watching wicked things on TV and speaking wickedness out of his mouth. It's total, it's opposite things. It's contrast to the blessings, blessings of God. We let, read last week as well in, uh, in John uh, 15. He's talking about the divine and the branches over here. He says, remain in me and let my words remain in you. And then, it doesn't say then, but and ask the Father anything of anything in my name and it will be given to you. But there's a process, there's somewhat of a formula. It's more of a, a spiritual understanding that if you remain in Jesus and his words remain in you, you're able to have the same desires as he does. Therefore, what you do ask, 
yes, it's absolutely in His will. You're able to gauge and understand what His will is. You remove the fellowship with Him and remove the word from that person, then they're a flake. Bottom line, they're a flake. And they can't gauge properly what they should or shouldn't pray for or ask God for. They'll ask out of their own evil desires. And just like in James uh, chapter 1, they'll get all fleshy because they don't get what they want. They're asking because of the wrong motive. You apply the word and you apply fellowship, it corrects the motive, it corrects the heart, corrects the understanding. And therefore, you know how to pray and what to ask for. Does that make sense? Praise God. Uh, Let's turn to Luke chapter 14. Chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 12, but let me kind of give a, a background on what's going on. We'll start at verse 1 through maybe uh, 4. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched by these guys. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts of the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. What would make a man remain silent? One, he doesn't know the answer. Two, he thinks he knows the answer, but is afraid of being proved wrong. He's a Pharisee. He's supposed to know. He doesn't know, so therefore he doesn't speak. Or he may know, is afraid, that Jesus is going to shoot him down. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent sent him away. Then he asked him, verse 5, If one of you has a son or ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. Again, it's a rhetorical question. It answers itself. Of course, you will save your animal because you love it. It's based on love, not law. When he noticed how the guests picked up places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. So he goes through the the parable from verse 8 to 11. But look at verse 12. It's where we really want to focus on. Then Jesus said to his host, who? The prominent Pharisee. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or your relatives, or your rich neighbors. (gasps) How offensive to shut out our family. We don't love our family. Let's take a closer look. Number one, who is he talking to? The very guy he knows is so self-absorbed and self-centered even though he, he would invite his friends, his brother, relatives, or rich neighbors, it's still about pomp and pageantry of himself. This guy's full of the pride of life. He's full of himself. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Our lives are, are, when we say this constantly around here, our lives are an open book. It's not just an open book to be read, but it's an open book to be interacted with. That, I mean, I know you guys here aren't to this level of a prominent Pharisee. <laughs> Y'all love Jesus. But, just like David, you said earlier, just as that overwhelming sense of failure creeps in, I experienced as well, when we begin to grow and we have a 
for a further gathering of people here, there will be that creeping temptation to treat people with wealth with a special respect rather than those who, who have less money. But let's go into the further detail. He didn't just say just the poor, but he, he said those, the very people that the Pharisees despised, they had nothing to do with. And if they did do anything, they wanted public recognition for Look at this great thing I'm doing. I'm serving the poor. and Catch me on camera as I'm feeding this baby. You know, Bring the press. Let them see how great I am. You're doing it for the wrong glory. You've got your glory. It's the pat on the back. But what we do, we do in secret. But he said, uh, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, these people who are in need. And with the, with the same attitude, the people that need to be in church, the sick. Yes, we are a hospital. Yes, the reason Jesus poured out his power and basically poured out his blood wasn't for the righteous. He poured out his blood for the salvation of the unrighteous. No difference here. Each one of us has this power at work in us and this gospel in us to give the people who are well. No. It's to minister to those who are sick. Those that are less thought of. And, and I'll just be kind of human here. When someone who comes in who is is not necessarily wealthy, but they appear to have everything together, everything's going fine for them financially, blah, 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 and they live, have this facade of well-being about them, it's easier to kind of you know mingle with them or I connect with them more, I understand them, they understand me. But you have this person, on the other hand, who is struggling financially, they don't seem to have together. Their social skills may be not up to par. They're, it's harder to connect to them. Uh, it's just it's more effort. It's more work. Well, whether you're a pastor or not, we're all in ministry to some degree. And there will be cases when relating to someone, even if they, they do have it together and are godly, it's different. But it's never, it never should be a separation point. But in this case of dealing with the temptation, it, it, it's a very fine line of you still want to be godly towards the person who has the facade. And you, part of me just kind of wants to go over there and bust their bubble and do something kind of crude, you know. That's why, that's why I wear sandals to church and, you know, <gasps> he's not wearing a three-piece suit. But, yeah, we do want to minister to those that that the world really don't doesn't want. They don't want a fellowship with people who are are lame, crippled, blind, physically or even mentally or spiritually. And uh, it's it's work, but it's the work that Jesus is called to, and it's the work that 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 pleases God. And uh, and what does He say? I, I can't expect these people to repay me. You know, if, if I invest this, this time. And get put on the business mind. If I attend to the people who have money, who have it together, I connect with them. It just the relationship is so strong. Then they'll tithe. Oh, they'll tithe this amount, and our church will flourish, and all these worries of financial burden will be gone. But if I minister and invest majority of my time with these other people, they don't have as much money. They're more of a burden, you know, appearing to be, and they don't get it. And this and that. That, that's really the temptation. That these people will not tithe as much. It goes back to a financial issue. We all know the word says the root of all the evil is what? The love of money. 
If the love of money is governing how I minister to people, whoa, watch out, put on the brakes. Somebody slap me with a fish. Because I need to be. I need to be always conscious of, first of all, what the Spirit is leading me to do, not my mind. And going back to the armor of God, having that helmet of salvation, gauging and filtering what comes in and what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling. Not that I squash things out, but I keep them in their proper place. Um, Let me go back to Jay. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to put up nice bricks and build a structure that's going to attract rich people. I'll, I mean, I won't build what's nice. I'm not going to have a, a hood, but uh, no, it's not the natural appearance. No. I mean, to be honest, with, stained glass is pretty. It's very good. I just, you know, the region that I grew up in, the connotation it always had is nauseating to me. But, you know, Eric, Eric said he had an experience one time where he went to uh, a church, a large church with stained glass. The sun was coming up. No one was in there. And him and Jennifer were walking in and praying in tongues. And they felt the Spirit of God so strong. They, he was in there ministering. And they have, I'm sure you, you guys know, they have little women or women in there that are so faithful in servanthood to God out of a pure heart, the best way they know how. They think that they're try- all they're trying to do is to please God the best way they know how. God has got to honor that. He really does. We'll read later on about Cornelius, but these women also build monuments in heaven because of their faithfulness to please God. A, a lot of us wouldn't even be saved if it wasn't for those very women. I know my grandmother is one of them, and even my mom, before she was born again. So, James 2. Verse 6. But you have insulted the poor. Is not the rich, isn't that the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name to whom you belong? There's nothing more offensive to somebody who is interested in riches and that wants glory than to deny them of either one of those. To tell, to tell them, you know what? If you're going to give, give as a cheerful giver and in secret. Don't give it for glory. And if you're not, then I strongly urge you to not give it all. <gasps> Take my name out of it? You won't put my name on the back of a pew or in a brick? You deny the rich man of the external glory? That will test his heart and see where his true motive is. If he comes back and says, you know what? I'm not out of this about the glory. I just really want to bless. That's a humble heart, and that's one that will please God. And we'll eventually get in line. And I'll go as far as this, this way. We know Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content in every situation. And he says specifically, rich or poor. He's been both. There are going to be times and in, in waves in our life where we have plenty. Times in our life when we don't. We want to be wise when we do. And be wise when we don't as well. But at the same time, the riches aren't going to rule or dictate me. Um, 
Uh, I, I see it in the Saints' perspective, the awesome example of managing uh, wealth with godliness is Joseph. Here's this guy at the very top of the chain, right below Pharaoh himself, governing a nation. I'm sure he had a nice house. I'm sure he had a nice car or chariot. He had a nice ride. It's tricked out with gold and lights and all, you know. <laughs> and get the hydraulics on it. But he had nice things. But you, you, you did not see it corrupt his godliness or his godly nature. He managed it well. Even the, the wealth of the entire nation during the seven years of prosperity, he took a certain section of it and stored it away. Because he knew from the prophecy that the times of, of famine were coming and they would use that. That very revelation and godly action sustained the nation of Israel at that point in time. And also the nation of, of Egypt and the surrounding nations. And made them pretty much the, the world ruler at that point in time. They were very, very strong. So in the same way, when we receive you know, times of blessing, we're, we're faithful with the blessing, we're wise with it. We've got to realize that this may not be forever. It's temporary. Everything is temporary. One funny joke, <laughs> one funny joke is that this guy... Uh, was hanging out with a bunch of Christians. They go to a store. They go in the store. They're all praising God. They just got have a, a Holy Ghost meeting. They come back out, and somebody had, had, I think, backed into the front of his car. He had spent, like, hours tricking out his ride, restoring, I think, his old Trans Am with the big Firebird on the front. Made it look beautiful. Put a lot of time into it. Some guy just clobbered the front end of it, backing out of the parking lot. Did something to the frame where it was totaled out. And he was the last one coming out of the store. All the other guys came out first. His friend said, oh, man, he's going to be so upset. Oh, God, well, you know, divert him and bring him home or something. He said, no, let him come out. He came out and saw his car. First thing came out of his mouth. And this is somebody who has a, a instant godly reaction, more likely because he had been in the presence of God before. He said, oh, it's all going to burn with fervent heat anyway. <laughs> it's all going to burn. He had the right perspective. He, I mean, put a lot of labor of love into that car, and it's kind of sad, but it's still temporary. And it's, to be honest with you, it's easy to say. It's hard to do. Very hard to do. So next time your car gets in a wreck, hopefully that happens to no one. We find and rebuke that in the name of Jesus. <laughs> but we all have the right perspective. Amen? All right. Verse 8. If you really keep the royal law, or the, I think the complete Jewish Bible says the kingdom Torah, the kingdom Torah, but we said the royal law, found in scripture, love your neighbors as yourself, you are doing right. There's a scripture in, in Romans. By keeping those, these two commands, love your neighbor yourself, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, we fulfill all the requirements of the Torah, the law. You, but Verse 9, but if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the Torah or the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Some of the fascinating things Eric, Eric brought up before he left. He said that uh, 
you know, all these states in Alabama, what have you, they want to post the Ten Commandments. That's only a piece of the law. Not to mention, the majority of them that, that want to be staunch about having those up, they only follow maybe four or five of them. What about observing the Sabbath? And it's not going to be observing the Sabbath the way I think it should be done. You're still holding to the law. You're going to hold just a part of it as it, you see fit for your own life. But no, we, we who are born again, we hold to the royal law, which is love your neighbor as yourself and your, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we'll fulfill everything as we're led by the Spirit. Um, let's go to, to Acts chapter 10. And as y'all are turning there, those Pharisees we mentioned back in Luke 14, the, one of the reasons, or what it boils down to, the Pharisees, why they didn't respond, why they were silent, and obviously one of the reasons that, that Jesus really hit them with this parable, was that it boils down to one, or sometimes a couple, but you have three sins that are common to man. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Pride is uh, is the number one killer or the root behind a lot of things that, that happen in people's lives. Where things decline or things get rumbled or upset. The Pharisees didn't respond because they didn't want to be shown to be wrong. Pride of life. They were proud of their stature, proud of their what they have achieved, what it, look at what I have done. And to do anything that shows weakness or ignorance or stupidity would be to forfeit all of it. Could you imagine after we go step back in time, after they had the meeting with Jesus, they go apart and said, you know, one of them looks at the other, bruh, that's a really stupid answer you gave when he asked that question. <laughs> and the next thing, the next thing, it becomes a rumor, goes to all of his friends, you know, what's the high priest going to say? Uh, give me your robe, give me your tassels, you know, go back on the street. You're not fit to be a Pharisee. Sure, all that was rolling through his mind. It was a pride of life. And, and parallel to that is the fear of man. Pride of life constituted why he didn't answer Jesus, but more than that, he was fear, fearful of what his peers were going to say as well. And notice they invited Jesus to have dinner with him. They saw him, you know, they heard him preaching, saw him as this possible prophet, this guy who really knew the word. He was prominent. The people loved him. They liked him. He was healing people left and right. He was popular. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Come over to our house. We'll have you for dinner. No problem. I mean, when he gets there and, and he just basically disses them and says, you know, look, guys, I'm not the one you really should have invited. You really want to keep the law? Keep it real? As, as we would say here in the Sugar Land Hood. Invite those who the world doesn't want. Not the popular. But, oh, no, they couldn't do that. They'll they lose their credibility in their own inner circle. Acts 10, chapter, Acts 10, verse 22. Yes. Be always ready. Verse 22, 22. 
a little bit further up. Um, Peter's on the rooftop, sees the vision of the animals, unclean animals. The Lord says, uh, kill and eat, or declare them clean. So, uh, verse 17 is where we'll pick up. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision of the, the sheet of the animals, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius, the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all Jewish people. A holy angel told him that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the man into the house to be his guest. Um, Let's go down to verse... Keep going. The next day Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following, day arrived, the following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. What a humble guy. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But, but God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask you why you sent for me? Let's go look at that verse again. But God has, verse 28, But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. He was justifying to himself through the law why he shouldn't fellowship with Gentiles. We see later on Paul rebuked him for that same mindset. This is something he struggled with. No different than what we were talking about earlier, showing favoritism between the rich man and the poor man, or the favorable and unfavorable in our own congregation. We should call no man, we should not call any man impure or unclean. Everybody deserves the gospel. Everyone deserves the ability to be loved by the love that comes from the gospel and to see this thing at work in us. Some are going to receive and some aren't. That's where I draw the line. If I begin to minister to somebody and as I'm ministering to them, God's Spirit clearly identifies to me their heart is hard. They really do not want to receive. And we've been, we've been persistent. We've given them our lives. We've shown them the deep love of Jesus, not just a surface of, you know, uh, you know, here's a glass of water. Uh, see you later. Get out of my church. But it goes into servanthood. And they still don't want to receive. We've done all we can do. That's our goal. I'm going to do all that's required of me by Jesus as I'm led by His Spirit. 
where it can sometimes get to be a problem and a need for, for wisdom is when someone who repeatedly comes back that does not want to change. And all they want to do is get freebies. You know, uh, something's always wrong. You never have the right tools. You know, I mean, you don't have it together. You're not able to get it together because really you don't want to. What it boils down to is that they love one of those three sins that are common to man. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, or pride of life. Until that's taken care of, which is what we're trying to do from the very beginning, by putting the word into them, by loving them, by serving them, until that's taken care of, sin will continually be their master. And they've got to decide, hey, and we'll pray for them, we'll lay hands on them, but if they don't want to, it will not go. Bottom line, the Spirit of God cannot override the will of man. Now, He can put you in some pretty tight situations that make you choose a certain direction. <laughs> but your heart can do one of two things. It can soften or it can harden. Pharaoh's hardened. Let's look at even going into Peter. They're a time of the crucifixion. Peter's, he, he forsook Jesus. And I'm sure he would have done the exact same thing Judas did. Judas's heart got harder. And he eventually was riddled with guilt and killed himself. Peter's was broken. And it became soft. And he repented. That's, that's the major difference. There's two types of heart that we do see. Verse 30. Cornelius answered, Four days ago I was in the house... In my house, praying at this hour, in three in the afternoon, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and, I said, and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you, for you immediately, and it is good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. I looked at King James Version. And this is where King James Version may come in handy to read. <laughs> Instead of favoritism, says God has no respect. He's not a respecter of persons or respecter of men. And we take on that same attitude. Not that I disrespect men, but their clout or outward appearance doesn't intimidate me and it doesn't influence me. And sometimes that's hard for us to do because it appeals to our weaknesses of the fear of man. It really does. But we overcome it. And Part of it is by having this word in us. Hey, man, if God doesn't show them respect or show differentiation between the two, I won't. Because if I do, going back to what we read in James, it's sin. It is sin. That's pretty tough. Say, well, you know, it's just it's a small thing. I'm just, you know, I'm hanging out with this person more. That's all. Well, you're justifying sin. <laughs> Bottom line. Um. Let's go back to James 2. We'll go over verse 10 again. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of law breaking 
of, of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker, regardless. And bottom line, what's the penalty of breaking the law? Death. Always death. Verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Slow to criticize. Easy to give grace. Easy to give uh, unmerited favor. Unmerited. I'm not going to give grace to somebody just because, well, you know, they bought me a car last week, so I'll let them slide. <laughs> no. It's unmerited. Verse 14. This is my, my favorite kind of stuff. i got a little bit of time left. I'm going to try to make it, make it quick, but make it good. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? So you have a guy claiming to have faith, but he has no deeds. Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well and keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? Can his words clothe him? Can his words feed him? Unless he's like superior king and he clicks his fingers and says, feed him, there's no way. In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. What he's saying there, and one thing we've got to understand is that the audience, who, who, is, who is he talking to or what is this man that he's talking about? He's talking about a man who claims to have faith and does not have deeds. Basically, he's saying when he says, but someone will say, bring up an, an, another angle, supposedly, or an objection to Paul's case. What? Can you hear the mountains tremble? It's what? Hawk? Hog. Oh, okay. Motorbike, okay. <laughs> uh, what he's saying is that someone brought up, let's say in the college class, an, an objective statement to counteract with the point he just made. You have faith, I have deeds. It's no different than someone saying... Well, that works for you, but this works for me. All right, you seeing each one as an independent virtue. It's no different than saying, "Well, David has the gift of uh, the gift of administration, and Manny has the gift of, you know, laying on of hands." Each one is an important issue, but here he's trying to bring together the understanding that no. One is based upon the other. They coexist. They do not exist separately. They have to work together. Otherwise, it is dead. It's laying on the ground, squished by a car, part of the tar. It's dead. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. 
You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. That's one of the things that, that changed my, uh, my prayer life in the early beginnings. Um, I guess the reason I say that is whenever I would begin to, to pray for people, I would just pray with a sense of believing that God exists and praying to Him like I'm emailing Him or sending Him some kind of letter. Further understanding and revelation, I realized I had a relationship. It's not just believing that He exists, but that believing that I have direct interaction with Him. And that once I got that revelation, it's one of the key scriptures that helped me to do that. It's like, oh, if demons realize that He exists, then I must have a deeper relationship than demons. I mean, come on. Verse 20. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. We'll we'll correlate this to speaking in tongues. When we all prayed to get filled with the Spirit, we knew... We came to the understanding that this was for us. We had to get really past that in our minds first. That, okay, Jesus wants to give me this. This is scriptural, and that's not freaky, and it's not demonic. So we're good on that point. Now is the fact of doing it. If I believe only that, that Jesus can make me speak in tongues or help me speak in tongues, but I never do it, my faith is never made complete. But it's by faith in conjunction or coexisting with action that tongues is produced and it comes out from me. No different than Paul says, I'll show you my faith by what I do. I'll show you I believe in tongues. Watch me do it. That's, that's the, the, the direct correlation. There's a, a statement that we always said. The man with the, the argument is at the mercy of the man with the experience. The man with experience has put his faith in conjunction with works. I mean, the argument just has a theoretical understanding of it. it. has no physical means of it. Verse 24. I'm sorry, a little bit further up, 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that God says, that, that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So faith is a direct, faith with works is a direct link to righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Now the emphasis that he that James is really focusing on is the faith part of the, the two entities. Let's turn to Romans four. Because when I read James, I'd already read Romans four, and it seemed to contradict itself. And it doesn't. It it complements each other. The key thing is to look at who are they writing to and what are they writing about. The Leaning Tower of Pisa over here for the Bible stand. Romans chapter 4, uh, da, 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 da. 
And it, it, it's fitting that James brought up Abraham as the example. So does Paul in Romans. Verse, verse 1. We'll start at verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Same Scripture as James brought up. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he circumcised or before? Now notice the work that he's talking about. He's talking about the physical action of doing this. As you're relating this back to, if you look kind of around the scripture line of scripture, He's really focusing on, on people who are law-minded and trying to justify themselves in that law. It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who have, been, who have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be credited to them as well. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through righteousness that comes by faith. So it's not through the the physical work alone, but it's by faith. As we begin to, to, to break this apart, we kind of run out of time. But James kind of hits the same point. The argument, the guy with the, the, the statement that he brought, brought up, you have faith and I have works. Pretty much I have what works for me, you have what works for you. This is a guy coming from the standpoint of I'll just do works alone. James is saying, no, they have to coexist. Faith without works is dead. Verse 14. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value, and the promise is worthless. It's no different than saying, by you coming into this physical building on Sunday, every Sunday, at 10 o'clock until 12, then by performing that very act alone, apart from anything else, you're fulfilling your obligation to God and therefore declared as righteous. We all know that's hogwash. Like the old saying, does, you know, go... Camping out in the garage, make your car? No. No different. Being in a church or doing godly things, godly acts alone, do not make you in good standing or right standing with God, which is what righteousness means. Let's keep reading. 
Faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's a teaching all by itself. We'll skip over it. <laughs> Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God. In him, he believed the God who gives life to the dead and calls things or not as though they are. So it, it goes further on and talks about how Abraham did believe, but in conjunction with his belief, he acted. Now, does God always have to see proof of your faith in order to say, okay, you haven't really done anything yet. Okay, your hands are moving. Oh, he's acting in faith. The bling is credit to your righteousness. Whenever we, we, we have faith, what, is it, what does it begin with before that? Can you guys know? It says it in Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Abraham heard God. Step one, you've got to hear from God before you have faith about something. There is somewhat of a pattern here. God speaks to us. We listen. What we do with that is the pivotal point. We can harden our heart and discount it or not even hear it at all because we're not being attentive. Or we have faith in it, meaning that we trust, we grab hold of it, and we store it within our heart and our minds. It takes root in us. By taking root in us, it will begin to produce certain kind of fruit. When we heard about Jesus or realized the word of God of who Jesus was and what what his sacrifice meant, but also with a condition that we were in, saying that we are a sinner, you, you need Jesus, bottom line. We heard that word, it took root in us, began to produce fruit of works that resulted in righteousness or righteous acts. Continue to read in, uh, in James. Does that make sense? Good. Verse 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So by observing the law, and I say this more to people who are just beginning the walk or have this mindset that... In order to please God, I have to have these certain set of rules. I can't watch movies. I can't smoke. I can't do this. can't do that. And a lot of times that keeps people from even coming into Jesus. But it's by be- believing, having faith in what his word says, that will change your actions and produce fruits or the, the actions of righteousness. And in conjunction with that, like mentioned in Romans, we submit... Uh, the members of our our or the members of our bodies, as uh, as tools or as uh, instruments of, of righteousness. Even that very act is our, our spiritual act of worship. So let's all stand to our feet.